This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our final week to discuss Arthur Miller's timeless allegory, The Crucible. And wow, we have covered a lot of topics. Week one, we went back to the 1690s and visited Salem, uh, which is the setting for this disturbing drama. And we learned the real story of Salem Village and the backstory that led to America's first and perhaps most famous incident of mass hysteria, but not the last. No. <laughs> on, on week two, we put history aside and spent a little time discussing tragedy and some of the literary aspects of the play. Last week, we jumped into the 1950s and presented a play as allegory. Uh, we told her at least we visited in part the story of the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare, and we introduced the man whose name is synonymous with it. Dun, 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 Senator <laughs> Joseph McCarthy. Uh, this week, we'll circle back to the literary, except this time we will explore the story of the Crucible as a love story. Is that unexpected? Uh, As well as introduce a little psychology, or maybe a lot of psychology. But before we do any of that, Christy, uh, you want to take a little detour and drop back into Miller's life and talk about Miller's love life, especially Marilyn. And how can you not? I mean, it's it's what was on the tabloids for his whole life. Miller's personal love story was bumpy. And some say actually, that there is a little bit of Miller in Proctor. And maybe that's true. I guess there's a little bit of Miller in all of the characters. But unlike Proctor's love story, Miller's finally found a happy ending. And I do want to say that looking at The Crucible as a love story is really the, I don't know, the best way maybe to read the play. Because in spite of it all, there is something 
to love here, and the lines between Elizabeth and John Proctor in this act are so compelling. They're beautiful, and Elizabeth draws for us a beautiful picture of redemption, and uh, John embraces it, and we see restoration. There's just a lot of grace here. I told you when we finished Machiavelli that redemption stories are my favorite, so I'm enchanted by this element in this one. So as a segue into the love story between John and Elizabeth Proctor, let's look at the love life of Arthur Miller. And like I said, it's a little bumpity at first. (laughs) Bumpity? Is that a word? Uh, No, I don't think so. But it was fun to say it's an onomatopoeia, I guess. It expresses Miller and Monroe's relationship. I can say you could call it bumpity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Marilyn wasn't the first Mrs. Miller. His first marriage was to a woman named Mary Slattery, and that marriage lasted 16 years. Arthur said he was drawn to her because she was from a background totally different from his own, a Midwestern Catholic. Uh, She was drawn to him because he was the Jewish New Yorker. But in spite of 16 years sounded like a long time, the marriage eventually failed. And Mary uh, went on to become a school psychologist. And beyond that, there's very little publicly known about her, except that she and Arthur didn't speak for over 20 years after their bitter divorce. But sadly, his track record was going to get worse before it got better. His second marriage was even less successful than the first one. Well, infinitely more famous. True, but but believe it or not, uh, when Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller met, Miller was the more famous of the two. He had just won a Pulitzer Prize for a death of a salesman. And Elia Kazan, um, the one we talked about last week, who would eventually give names to the House Un-American Activities Committee, he introduced them, and it appears there was an instant attraction on Marilyn's part because he was the only man in the room who didn't immediately fawn all over her. Well, I'm sure there was an attraction on his part as well, as clearly seemed to be the case with all men when it came to Marilyn Monroe. He was just coy enough to hide it. <laughs> uh, likely, but, you know, that's not unusual. What's unusual is that uh, she was interested in this nerdy writer at all, um, although it did start out just as a correspondence. She had married Joe DiMaggio first, a professional baseball player, and they married in 1954. Well, there you go. The jocks get first dibs. Uh. <laughs> Brawn over brain. Uh, However. (laughs) You're not commenting on that. No. She said this about Miller when she first saw him back in 1950. She said this. It was like running into a tree. You know, like a cool drink when you've had a fever. I bet she said it like this. It was a cool drink. (laughs) If only they could see the visual of your Marilyn Monroe. So she and Miller wrote to each other for about five years, and eventually their relationship developed into an affair after her relationship with uh, Joe DiMaggio went south in 1955, and uh, that marriage lasted less than a year. By 1955, Miller is hooked on Marilyn, and he has established a residency in Nevada just for the purpose of being able to divorce his first wife and marry Marilyn. Poor Mary. <laughs> she was filming the movie Bus Stop. Now, now pay attention to the years here because at the same time he's in Nevada trying to get divorced and married to Marilyn Monroe, he gets his subpoena to go before the House on American Activities. 
Well, what an inconvenient time to be called a communist spy. <laughs> it made for an eventful year. So uh, what we have here, you know, that's my fondest interest. We've got this all-American pinup girl now hooking up with a supposed nefarious communist. And of course, that's all political nonsense looking back at it at the time. But it, it's very risky, especially professionally. Monroe made the decision to publicly support Miller through his mess, but it wasn't without, um, you know, a personal and professional risk. Uh, she was advised to distance herself from him, but instead she went public with her support, so much so, believe it or not. But Miller, years later, said he was approached by several members of the committee and told if he would arrange a photo op with them personally, with Monroe, they could make this whole thing go away. Well, there you go. True men of conviction. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> she did seem to have that effect on men. I said it before. <laughs> well, he, standing firm in his conviction, refused that offer and invitation. Nobility. <laughs> uh, when that debacle ended, they sneaked away and they were married in a little four-minute ceremony. And uh, Miller's cousin and his wife were the only witnesses. There was no press. There was no celebrities. Imagine trying to pull it off today. Uh, they did have a traditional Jewish ceremony later on, although by that time, Marilyn was already having second thoughts and almost backed out. And so there were only 25 guests, but... Uh, Christy, you'll enjoy this bit of sexist humor. Oh, dear. (laughs) There was a guest and a friend named George Axelrod, and he tried to make a witty speech, and he said something along the lines of this. May their children not have Arthur's looks and Marilyn's brains. Oh, my gosh. That is one of the worst toasts I think one could ever make. I think it was a fail. Uh, but in his defense, I mean, there was another quote circulating at Wait, that time. Wait, in his defense is almost a wrong turn of phrase. Well. <laughs> Nevertheless. Um, there was another quote circulating uh, about the Nobel winner Anatoly France and Isidore Duncan. And that was between the two of them. And, and the joke and context was actually funny. So he was likely trying to compliment the two and make a pun off this original joke. But... Um, it failed, and I knew you wouldn't like to comment very much. Well, I could say today that would fall flat no matter what you're claiming. <laughs> well, it gets worse. Oh, how could it possibly? Well, not long after this that uh, Marilyn Monroe finds a notebook of Miller's, supposedly where he was writing a script, but in the paperwork, Monroe saw where he had actually written down something to the effect that he was embarrassed of her because she was dumb and he was disappointed in their marriage. Oh, my gosh. Wow, true. But in spite of that bit of... Bumpity. <laughs> we're back to that. Well, okay, so uh, in, the spite bumpity of, marriage. in spite of this accidental confession, uh, they did work through that disappointment on her part, and they actually stayed married until 1960. And Marilyn even tried to be a homemaker, if you can imagine, the kind who stays home and cooks and the whole bit that you think of when you think of the 1950s. And for decades after her death, Miller never wanted to talk about his marriage to Monroe, and he rarely did, although the press constantly asked him about her. So during their marriage, uh, she had three miscarriages and several other problems, not the least of which was drug use and It ended when uh, Monroe traveled to Mexico on January 20th, 1961, 
to get a divorce. And she picked that date because she hoped the uh, publicity of John F. Kennedy's inauguration would knock her divorce off the front page. It's all about the timing. Oh, I guess it is. And, of course, as everyone knows, on August 5th, 1962, the next year, she died from a drug overdose. And Miller did not attend her funeral, noting she won't be there. Well, that's a terrible thing to say. Well, it is. But truth be told, it does appear he did love her, and she loved him. And he wrote a lot of plays that had characters with links to Monroe. And although she probably wasn't as smart as he was, Miller has made many comments to suggest that uh, he didn't think she was dumb. He said this about her. She was witty. She was making fun of the situation as she was playing it. That was the difference. People thought they could imitate her by being cute, but she was being cute and making fun of being cute at the same time. There was another dimension, which is very difficult to do, and I would like to point out only somebody like Miller could have spotted that. Well, it is clever. I mean, clearly she knew how to monetize the skill, this ditzy blonde shtick that she had going on, and, you know, that's brilliant. Well, I think so. Uh, and you don't get to be famous, I guess, by actually being dumb. No, but, I don't guess you do. But then again, I wouldn't know, having <laughs> never been famous. So. No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> but to tell the rest of his love story, Miller got it right the third time. His uh, third marriage worked well. He married Austrian photographer Inga Morris a year after he and Monroe split up. And they stayed together for 39 years until she died in 2002. They had two children together. His daughter, uh, Rebecca, produced The Crucible, the movie, and married Daniel Day-Lewis, who happens to star as John Proctor in Mm. that production. And as far as I know, they're still married. Uh, So here's a bit of irony. John Proctor finds true love off the script. (laughs) Yes, he does. And he finds it. In the script, too. Let me show you how. So, jumping in, in episode two, we talked about this story being a tragedy, and obviously it is. Arthur Miller wrote a famous essay titled Tragedy and the Common Man. Actually, he didn't write it about the Crucible. He was actually writing it about another play that had opened, Death of a Salesman, but it still applies. In the essay, he says this, I think the tragic feeling is invoked in us when we are in the presence of a character who is ready to lay down his life, if need be, to secure one thing, his sense of personal dignity. The tragic flaw or crack in his character is really nothing, it need be nothing, but his inherent unwillingness to remain passive in the face of what he conceives to be a challenge to his own image of his rightful status. Now, I know that sounds confusing because it's a quote and it's literary, but as I think about how this fourth act is constructed, I think we're brought to a place where we're meant to consider what gives people dignity and what people do when they're threatened by public shame. It really takes me back to another Puritan book, The Scarlet Letter, the first one we ever did, because in The Scarlet Letter, there are also three different characters and they're confronted with their, and I'm putting this in quotes, sin. I want to use the Puritan terminology here, not just because it's 
a Puritan play, but because it expresses this special idea that can help us make sense on what we see going on in Salem. There's another Christian word for sin, and that word is transgression. Now, the word transgress, if you break it down, you see the word trans, which means cross, and you see the word gress, which means go, and the word literally means you go too far. You've crossed this threshold and you've gone from good to a place that is now evil. That's what's happened in Salem. They've gone too far. They've transgressed. Now, what do you do when you've gone too far? Well, just like in the Scarlet Letter, there are three characters. They each took a different path. That's what we see here. We see three different groups of people or three people doing different things in the face of their transgression. We see Danforth and Hawthorne, or the judges, the legal community, the law, the government. It's gone too far. It's transgressed. They've They've transgressed. And we're going to see it again in Hale. He's sinned. The religious community, if you want to see him as representing that, they clearly have gone too far. They've transgressed. He's transgressed in his responsibility to his community. He's transgressed in his responsibility before God. And then it gets personal because we get to see Proctor. And he also has transgressed. He's gone too far. He's transgressed in his responsibility to his wife, to his community, to himself. And he says this in his discussion with Elizabeth. He says this, I cannot mount the gibbet like a saint. It's a fraud. I am not that man. My honesty is broke, Elizabeth. I am no good man. And yet every single person in the audience by this point in the play disagrees with Proctor on that. Well, true and false, because this is a Greek tragedy, like, because he has gone too far. Nobody defends his actions, and but we think it's not fair that he's the only one that has to pay such a high price when everybody else has gone too far, too. Why does he have to hang? Well, where does that leave Paris and Putnam? Those two rats are truly bigger instigators than Abigail and the girls, and Although the girls drop out, Paris is still a character to the very end. True, and and I think it's funny to point out that Abigail and Mercy Lewis have literally vanished. According to Paris, they've robbed him of his life savings and boarded a ship, apparently to Barbados. And this is so funny, because Miller does have some humor in this. According to Tituba, the devil is nicer there because it's not so cold. <laughs> the devil is nicer. Uh, well, it's my experience that everyone's nicer when they're not oh, cold. Oh, isn't that the truth? But back to Paris and Putnam, but primarily Paris because he's the only voice in Act 4. I see him differently than I see these other three characters in that he's not making a decision. He doesn't really have an active role here. No, I mean, uh, Paris's internal world is not disintegrating like the others. Uh, His outside world may be falling apart because, you know, it's quite clear the town hates him and (laughs) Abigail has robbed him, but he doesn't seem to express any crisis of conscience for any harm he's done to anybody. No, and he's telling, you know, Proctor to the end, stop! 
he's a pawn and you know you don't really even care much about him by this point by the time we get to act four it's clear that public opinion has shifted on the witch hunt the next town over apparently andover it is absolutely in revolt the witch hunt shtick is up And Paris is nervous. He's nervous about his physical safety. That very night, someone left a dagger at his door. People are angry. That guy is done. (laughs) And he does not want Proctor to hang, primarily because he's afraid if the town's going to come for him if they do. It's obvious to him that things have gone too far. And if we're up to him, if he had any say-so, he'd probably find a way to call the whole thing off. But it's not up to him. The real power broker's are the judges. And the crisis is with Danforth because he is, in this play, the man with the power. Danforth has to decide if he's going to hang Proctor. The power is in his hands. He's the one that has signed the death warrants in the past, and it is he who will decide to hang or spare Proctor. You know, it's interesting to me how, at this point, the church and the state separate on this case. That's true, they do. Hale, the preacher, is of genuine religious conviction. He's not greedy or political. And by the end of Act 3, he has his own kind of climax, and he has decidedly decided not to keep going on this tra- in this decision. He's going to defend uh, the victims and not the proceedings. He's been instrumental in arresting lots of people. In fact, that includes Elizabeth. But he has recognized that what he has done is wrong. In Act 4, we see Hale in the jail. And apparently he's been there for months pleading with the very people that he put in there to just admit that they're a witch, even if it's a lie, because this whole court thing is a lie. And he doesn't see the point. It's a religious decision for him. And he made it. He's faced his sin. He's faced his transgression. He sees that he's gone too far. And when he recognizes what he's done, he completely reverses courses. He changes direction. That takes a lot of nerve to do. And really, it takes a lot of humility. Danforth absolutely does not do that. He doubles down. It doesn't even seem that he considers to reflect on the idea that he could be wrong. Cognitive psychologists speak to that very idea. Uh, Cognitive psychologists tell us that the human brain doesn't just perceive the world. Our brain creates a story, and it creates a story with us in it. It's a narrative of our lives, and it's our story that guides our interactions in the world. We um, are all protagonists in our own lives. We play the lead. And now what is interesting, and I'm going to oversimplify this, I know, But in essence, we need to be the good guy in the story of our lives, even if, in fact, we are evil or have done something that violates our own conscience. It's hard to live with the fact that we're the villain when you think about it. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Well, uh, that's why people can suffer from things like belief perseverance. And uh, sometimes we continue to believe something well beyond when it's been discredited because um, the thought of being the bad guy in the story of our lives is just more than we can deal with. And uh, Danforth has a real problem. Uh, they've already killed people. And, and, you know, how do you live with yourself if you're responsible for the murder of innocent people? And how can he admit he's done something evil? I mean, he's supposed to be the law. He's the man with the power. 
uh, he would lose his self-respect. His entire life narrative would disintegrate. He would have to own a terrible failure of unprecedented proportions. And what we're watching is a man, Danforth, uh, doing everything in his power to avoid seeing the obvious because he absolutely cannot accept the alternative. He frames the questions to get the answers that he wants, and he imposes all kind of obvious counterfactual thinking, and he will do this at all costs, even the cost of more lives, other than for the ability to avoid him looking at his self, self-self-destruct. Well, I don't want to digress too much into history, but Miller said something really interesting about the real judges in Salem, not just Danforth of the play. And I do want to quote him while we're talking about this, because I find it makes sense. And Miller says this, in reading the record, now he's talking about the transcripts of the trials that actually happened, but he says this, I found one reoccurring note, which has a growing effect upon my concept not only of the phenomenon itself, but of our modern way of thinking about people, and especially of the treatment of evil in contemporary drama. Some critics have taken exception, for instance, to the unrelieved badness of the prosecution in my play. I understand how this is possible, and I plead no mitigation, but I was up against historical facts that were immutable. He goes on to describe the way that the judges acted, especially toward the elderly and especially toward the universally respected Rebecca Nurse. And Miller finds what they did absolutely indefensible. He talks about how cold and how calculating the Putnams were in conferring with their daughters and her friends to decide who they would claim as a witch. And he drew this conclusion, and I want to quote Miller here, because to me it's a little controversial. He says this, There are people dedicated to evil in the world that without their perverse example, we should not know good. Evil is not a mistake, but a fact in itself. I believe merely that from whatever cause, a dedication to evil, not mistaking it for good, but knowing it as evil and loving it as evil is possible in human beings who appear to be agreeable and normal. Yikes. (laughs) Yikes. <laughs> yes, rightfully yikes. I mean, he thinks guys like Putnam and Danforth are just plain evil. What do you think? I know that's a hard statement because we're not talking about characters in the plays. When he's talking about Danforth and Putnam, he's talking about the real ones. It's something the great philosophers of all of humanity have discussed for thousands of years, and uh, now Miller is weighing in on it. It's what he sees in Danforth, and I let uh, Miller speak to that. I want to go back to this phrase, from whatever cause, a dedication to evil. What might be the cause and motivation for all the characters here? Because it's the motivations that are interesting to observe as we see these men behave very differently. And I want to go back to this idea that all humans are writing the story of their own lives in real time. Every one of us is. And if we think of it that way, Danforth, Hale, and Proctor have arrived at this literary climax, a place from which they cannot return. Their understanding of who they are is being called into question. And here, uh, the focus is going to shift from Danforth to Hale, and ultimately it's going to land on Proctor. And Danforth decides to kill 
rather than change. I guess that's why Miller thinks he's evil. <laughs> right. Hale immediately decides to change, but the most interesting of these three is Proctor. Uh, Proctor's crisis of identity is not that he's being called a witch. I mean, we see this when he talks to Elizabeth. It doesn't even seem like he cares about being called a witch. Uh, he doesn't view himself as a witch, and that is not what he's sitting in jail thinking about. He views himself as an adulterer. That was his transgression. That is his sin. Uh, that's what has caused him the most misery as he sat in that jail cell for months, thinking of his pregnant wife in the other cell and knowing what he had done to her. Proctor loves and respects his wife, and what he has done in her eyes to her has made his whole life story disintegrate, and he doesn't know who he is anymore. Well, I definitely agree that the adultery is the central event in the story, even though it happened before the play began. The Crucible, fundamentally, is the story of Proctor and Elizabeth trying to recover a life that's disintegrated. Proctor didn't make a mistake. He made a choice, and he sees it as a choice. And the story of his life up to that point, he'd always thought of himself, and this is what he says, as an honest person. Many times he said that. We saw that in Act 2. But at the same time, he owns the fact, finally, that he has engaged in a deep deception and a betrayal of himself, of his wife, of everything. And when we look at Proctor in this way, we can see that he's struggling with a sense of shame, with his sense of self-worth, a sense of value and who he thinks he is in the world. And he doesn't know how to be the good person anymore. He doesn't see that he can be. That's what he means when he keeps talking about wanting his name. It's interesting that in the court scene in Act 3, he has the courage, he finds the courage to look at who he is in the world and decides that there's something more important than being the protagonist of his own life, and that's his love for his wife. So in spite of all the shame that he knows will bear down on him in this community, he chooses her over him. Exactly. And in that moment, uh, when he tells his entire world that he is the worst thing their community can imagine, an adulterer, he destroys his whole life narrative of who his community had thought him to be or who he has thought himself to be, after all. He also is a Puritan, and these are his values, too. Yes, and when Elizabeth lied for him, something she had never done in her whole life, he knows that's on him, too. She destroys who she is, her name, for him, and he has to own that. I really like the conversation between these two characters in Act 4. It's the first time they've seen each other since the courtroom. It's been three months. It's so moving. Proctor asks Elizabeth to forgive him. Her reply really has two parts. First, she extends grace to him. The gift that she wants to give him is the ability to remove the shame and help him rebuild this narrative about himself where he can once again be the protagonist in his own story. She wants to give him back his name, and she does. It's really a beautiful gift. She assumes responsibility in their relationship. He doesn't let her. He doesn't want her to. It's likely not her fault, but this is between them. And as I read it, 
I find that I don't even really care anymore what happened in the past. It's so far past what's going on at that moment. She's letting it all go and she's allowing him or giving him permission really to do the same. And what a gift to give someone for someone to say when you really don't believe it yourself that no, you are not a bad person. And she says, I see the good in you, John Proctor. That's literally what she says. And those words can deliver healing for him in a way that maybe nothing else could have. And Proctor is healed. This is her gift of grace. I think it's worth reading. Should we take a read? Yeah, let's take a read. All right. I've been thinking I would confess to them, Elizabeth. What say you if I give them that? I cannot judge you, John. What would you have me do? As you will, I would have it. I want you living, John, that's sure. Giles' wife, has she confessed? She will not. It is a pretense, Elizabeth. What is? I cannot mount the gibbet like a saint. It is a fraud. I am not that man. My honesty is broke, Elizabeth. I am no good man. Nothing spoiled by giving them this lie that we're not rotten long before. And yet you've not confessed till now. That speak goodness in you. Spite only keeps me silent. It's hard to give a lie to dogs. I would have your forgiveness, Elizabeth. It is not for me to give, John. I am... I'd, I'd have you see some honesty in it. Let them that never lied die now to keep their souls. It is pretense for me, a vanity, and that will not blind God, nor keep my children out of the wind. What say you? John, it come to naught that I should forgive you if you'll not forgive yourself. It is not my soul, John. It is yours. Only be sure of this, for I know it now. Whatever you will do, it is a good man does it. I have read my heart this three month, John. I have sins of my own to count. It needs a cold wife to prompt lechery. Enough, enough. Better you should know me. I will not hear it. I know you. You take my sins upon you, John. No, I take my own, my own. John, I counted myself so plain, so poorly made. No honest love could rest in me. Suspicion kissed you when I did. I never knew who I should say my love. It was a cold house I kept. Hawthorne, what say you, Proctor? The sun is soon up. Elizabeth, do what you will, but let none be your judge. There be no higher judge under heaven than Proctor is. Forgive me, forgive me, John. I never knew such goodness in the world. I want my life. You'll confess yourself. I will have my life. Hawthorne. God be praised. It is a providence. Proctor has confessed. He will confess. Why do you cry it? It is evil, is it not? It is evil. Elizabeth. I cannot judge you, John. I cannot. Then who will judge me? God in heaven. What is John Proctor? What is John Proctor? I think it is honest. I think so. I am no saint. Let Rebecca go like a saint. For me, it is fraud. I am not your judge. I cannot be. Do as you will. Do as you will. So Elizabeth gives him this sense of dignity and of pride, and there's healing in this love, but she also gives him his strength. 
Uh, as this dialogue moves outward from the conversation between these two to the conversation with Danforth, Proctor emerges. He has reconstructed himself into a better version, a stronger version of himself. And it's not that he sees himself as perfect, but he seems to understand better who he is and what he will or will not do in this world and what he can and cannot withstand in this world. And um, this is reflected in his conversation with Danforth. Danforth wants him to betray his friends, uh, become a Danforth in a sense, because by naming names, he'll be free, but others will go to jail and potentially sent to the gallows. So let's read these lines. They really are so powerful, but I'll be the evil Danforth if you want to be Proctor. How does that sound? Okay. <laughs> Mr. Proctor. You will not use me. I am no Sarah Good or Tichaba. I am John Proctor. You will not use me. It is no part of salvation that you should use me. I do not wish to. I have three children. How may I teach them to walk like men in the world? And I sold my friends. You have not sold your friends. Beguile me not. I blacken all of them when this is nailed to the church the very day they hang for silence. Mr. Proctor, I must have good and legal proof that you... You are the high court. Your word is good enough. Tell them I confess myself. Say Proctor broke his knees and wept like a woman. Say what you will, but my name cannot... It is not the same. It is not. If I report it or you sign it. No, it is not the same. What others say and what I sign is not the same. Why? Do you mean to deny this confession when you're free? I mean to deny nothing. Then explain to me, Mr. Proctor, why you will not let... Because it is my name. Because I cannot have another in my life. Because I lie and sign myself to lies. Because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang. How may I live without my name? I have given you my soul. Leave me my name. Is that document a lie? If it is a lie, I will not accept it. What say you? I will not deal in lies, mister. You will give me your honest confession in my hand or I cannot keep you from the rope. What way do you go, mister? Danforth, Marshall, Paris, Proctor, Proctor, hail. Man, you will hang. You cannot. I can. And there's your first marvel that I can. You have made your magic now. For now, I do think I see some shred of goodness in John Proctor. Not enough to weave a banner with, but wide enough to keep it from such dogs. Give them no tear. Tears pleasure them. Show honor now. Show a stony heart and sink them. And of course, the final lines of the play are when Hale turns to Elizabeth and says, Woman, plead with him. And she responds, he have his goodness now. God forbid I take it. And with that, the curtain falls. What a contrast between these two men. I mean, Danforth would rather kill than face his own shame and guilt. And he's more willing to kill than he is to deconstruct himself and own his own personal shame. And that's what Miller is calling evil. And hence the tragedy. When we watch this, when I read it, I feel these lines. I experience the story of a man doing a good job at being a human. And I feel rage because here's this other man that's just horrible at it. Be it weakness, be it evil, be it both, be it the same thing. And, and yet, like we talked about the other week, 
people loved tragedy because in, in some sense there was never any mystery about how this was going to end. There's a, a little bit of peaceful satisfaction actually. And Proctor dies with his self-respect and he lost his life, but humanity won. In that sense, there is some hope in how this play ends. Well, we've ended yet another great play. The Crucible is such a play of action and suspense, but yet there at the end, it gets so personal. Arthur Miller plays around with trying to get you to ask yourself, huh, who am I in this play? Am I Abigail? Am I Mary Warren? Am I Elizabeth? Hale? Hopefully I'm not Paris, Putnam, or Danforth. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you are those people, your (laughs) self-reflection would not lead you to think you were those people. All right. Good point. But but then again, uh, you know, he somehow and somewhat suggests that you could very easily be these people. Well, it's part of the genius of setting this play in 1692. The language of the place is just cheesy enough and quirky enough to keep us at a little bit of a distance between this world of witch hunts and the world that we live in now. And yet, all of us will live through an experience where we can overlay all the lessons of this in our life. And um, this play is performed all over the world and and in every age. And it's really not distant at all. So... Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this discussion of this great American play. Next week, we'll journey south of the border to Puerto Rico for our poetry supplement. Um, Arthur Miller wasn't the only one writing political pieces in the 1930s. And um, identity politics and the complex relationship between this island and the United States uh, gave us some wonderful art that we're going to look at. And, We look forward to listening to what this beautiful island has to share. And in the meantime, please connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever you get your social media. Check out the HowToLoveLitPodcast.com page. We love to chat. Peace out. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.